This podcast is produced by Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. We would love to have you join us at one of our church services on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. Today's episode features a speech from a 2022 family conference hosted by the British Reformed Fellowship, the topic of which was union with Jesus Christ. We hope you are edified by this content. There are at least four common mistakes about union with Christ and marriage that I will correct in this speech. The first is that the main relation of our earthly marriages and the union of us with Christ, if not the only relationship, is that our marriage is a symbol to us of Christ's union with the church and of the church's union with Christ. This is true, of course, that is, that our marriage, indeed the earthly institution of marriage, is a sign to us, pictures to us, the relationship of Christ and the church, and therefore the relationship of Christ with every believing member of the church. As is the union of the believing godly husband with his wife, so is the union of Christ and the church. What is often overlooked is that it is also true that the union of Christ and the church determines the nature and conduct of the husband and wife. This is the force of Ephesians 5 verse 32. One would think, as I have pointed out already, that the great mystery is the relation of the husband and the wife. In fact, It is the relation of Christ and the church. Christ and the church is the first fundamental and real marriage. And Christ's relation to us determines ours. Christ's marriage with us determines the real marriage between Christ and the church. Christ's Marriage with us determines our conduct with each other in the institution of marriage. That mistake I want to correct this morning. Second, a common mistake is to suppose that the basic callings of husbands and wives are separate, independent callings. The husband is to love his wife and the wife is to submit to her husband. And those callings and duties are unrelated to each other. They're separate from each other. That's a mistake that we make. The truth is that the husband's calling and duty are the first and basic calling of all, so that in an important respect, the wife's calling depends upon the husband's fulfilling his calling. Wives submit to their husbands because the husband loves his wife. This is clearly evident in the comparison of our marriage with the union of Christ and the church. The church's submission to Christ depends upon Christ's loving her. Christ does not threaten the church into submission. He loves his church into submission. More than once as a pastor, I confronted husbands with this reality. The husband would come to the study complaining, my wife does not submit to me. 
When I did a little examination, I found out that he mistreated her and thought that he could force submission upon her by threats and violence. And my response invariably to such a husband was, man, love your wife into submission. Do not threaten her into submission because, among other things, that doesn't work. And this truth is clearly evident from the comparison that the Apostle makes in Ephesians 5. The church is to submit to Christ. And I ask all of us who are believers here this morning, what causes us to submit to Jesus Christ? Is it that he threatens us? Is it that he warns us that he will beat us if we do not submit to him? The answer is negative. Christ obtains submission from us by loving us. Submit to me because I love you and have loved you with such a love as has brought you to the cross. That's the way that Christ obtains submission from his wife, the church. That error I want to correct also. Third, it is a common error of husbands to read their calling in Ephesians chapter 5 as though the apostle stopped in verse 25 with the words, love your wives. It is a mistake that husbands make that they read their calling in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives, period. They ignore what follows in the rest of verse 25, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And the further explanation of the calling of husbands in what follows in verses 26 through 29. If the husband reads his calling simply as husbands love your wives, then he explains that calling as though all that was necessary for him is a kind of romantic feeling and a kind of romantic behavior on his part towards his wife. The apostle adds to the calling of the husband, love your wife, love your wife, as Christ loved the church. That's important. And fourth, it is today a common mistake to suppose that all is well in marriage among us in the church because we forbid divorce and remarriage. There is, in fact, a grievous evil concerning marriage among us, including the Protestant Reformed churches. It is the evil of wife abuse. This evil is often deliberately ignored. It is often swept under the church rug, and it is even denied even though it is obviously taking place. Then, if I may paraphrase Matthew 23, verse 27, we appear beautiful outwardly because we forbid divorce and remarriage, but are within full of dead women's bones because we tolerate wife abuse. This error, too, I intend to address and correct this morning. Consider with me the lovely biblical gospel of the union of Christ and Christian marriage. Ephesians is the outstanding epistle on the church in the Bible, very much including union of Christ and the church. 
It's a reminder that in our study of the union of the people of God with Christ, we may not overlook that aspect of the union that consists of the union of Christ and the church. Not now simply the union of Christ with each of us personally and individually, but Ephesians reminds us that union of Christ is very union with Christ is very much the union of Christ and the church as a body. Therefore, Ephesians confronts us with the truth of the union of believers with the church and the union of each believer with other members of the church. I point to passages in Ephesians of the union of Christ and the church. The church has been chosen or elected in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 4. The church was created in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 10. And then importantly for the epistle to the Ephesians, the Gentile Christians who once were far off have been brought nigh and united with the Jewish believers in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 13. Through him, Jesus Christ, Jewish and Gentile Christians have access to the Father. Ephesians 2, verse 18. And then finally, in Christ, the church is united and grows. Ephesians 2, verse 21. The practical application of union with Christ and the church in the book of Ephesians is especially the unity of the Jewish and Gentile members of the church. I emphasize that. Ephesians emphasizes the unity of Jewish and Gentile members of the church by virtue of the union of both camps with Jesus Christ himself. So now I'm speaking not so much about the vertical union of Christ and the church as I'm speaking about the horizontal union of believing members of the church with each other by virtue of that vertical union with Jesus Christ. Differences between the Jewish and Gentile members of the church were an especially serious threat to the unity of the church in the time of the apostle. That threat and those differences put all our dangerous differences in the shade. The differences among us amount to very little in comparison with the differences between the Gentile and Jewish members of the church in the time of the Apostle. Minor differences among us are often a threat to our unity in Christ. They are the occasion for schism. I remember well in my first congregation that the congregation was originally made up of believers with a German reform background. And then soon after I became pastor of the church, Dutch, that is, members who were of a Dutch background, began to move in and join the congregation. And that posed the threat of serious division in the congregation over really minor matters in comparison with the differences between the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the Church of the Apostles' Day. Those members of my congregation that were German in background 
stood to pray, and sat to sing. And they were also accustomed to taking the Lord's Supper with individual cups, or no, with common cups, a common cup. All drank out of the same cup of wine of the Lord's Supper. The Dutch, however, had different customs. They stood to sing and sat to pray. And they were accustomed to using these tiny little individual cups to take the Lord's Supper. And you would have thought by the warfare that erupted over those minor matters that one camp confessed Christ and the other denied Christ. That was a serious threat to the unity of the church. But those were minor matters. They couldn't stand in comparison with the differences between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians at the time of the Apostle. And those threats between those two kinds of church members, the Apostle addresses in the book of Ephesians. Those differences between Gentile and Jewish members of the church were the subject, especially in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. In verse 11, the Apostle speaks of the uncircumcision and the circumcision, that is, the Gentile members and the Jewish members. He spoke of Israel, the Jews obviously, and the strangers, the Gentiles, who were lately brought into the church. He spoke of the truth that God hath made both one, Jews and Gentiles, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition, that is, the differences between the Jew believer and the Gentile believer. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, he speaks of the truth that God has brought the twain, the two camps, the two kinds of church members into the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle uses several figures to represent the oneness that the church has, and therefore also the union that the members enjoy among themselves by virtue of the union of the church with Jesus Christ. One figure is that of the human head with the human body. Christ is the head and the church is the body. Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Another figure is that of the cornerstone and the building that is both framed by the cornerstone and rests upon the cornerstone. Still another figure is that of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 and that's the figure that we want to examine this morning under the theme union with Christ and marriage that topic is drawn straight from Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33 Obviously, the Holy Spirit compa compares our union with Christ with the union of the husband and the wife in marriage. Over and over in Ephesians, the apostle compares the union with Christ with marriage by the words as and even as. He uses the comparative as and the comparative even as. Examples include the following. The wife is to submit to her husband as the church is subject unto Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 24. The husband is to love his wife even as Christ also loved the church 
Ephesians 5, verse 25. So close is the comparison that in marriage the husband and wife become one flesh. So closely are they united. Just as Christ and the church are one entity, one reality in the mystical union created by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 31. Here, obviously, the apostle has his eye on Genesis 2, verse 25, where God creates marriage and unites Adam and Eve in the bond of marriage, and where God's institution of marriage is described with its wonderful union at creation. They too shall be one flesh. Although the sexual aspect of marriage is the supreme expression and enjoyment of this union in marriage, it is not the only aspect. There are other important aspects to the union of the husband and the wife. The husband and the wife, although two distinct persons, share one life. That's a union of sorrows and joys, a union of struggles and disappointments, a union of thinking and planning, a union of success and failure, and especially a union of spiritual weal, weal means blessedness and happiness, a union of spiritual weal and woe. This last, the spiritual oneness, is especially the calling of the husband. As Christ concerned himself with the spiritual welfare of the church, Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. So, verse 28, ought men to love their wives as Jesus loved the church. And Jesus' love for the church was especially a concern for the spiritual welfare of his church. That's instruction to us husbands that our main concern with regard to our wife is not to provide earthly necessities for her or earthly protection to her, but especially the spiritual welfare of the wife. Well, may we ask at the end of every day, and certainly we're going to be required to face that question in the final judgment by God. Did you concern yourself for the spiritual welfare of your wife? Did all of your conduct in your marriage end in this, that it was upbuilding to the spiritual health and welfare of the woman who is your wife? That's the calling of the husband. How contrary to his calling, then, is the conduct of the abusive husband. The abusive husband destroys his wife by his psychological and often physical abuse. Because of the direct purpose of Ephesians 5 regarding the conduct of husbands and wives in marriage, it is right that us ministers instruct our married people and those in the congregation who are about to be married from Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> the husband is authoritative head. The wife is the submissive body. The husband's calling is to love. The wife's calling is to submit. Even though in Ephesians 5, nothing is said explicitly 
about the lifelong permanency of every marriage or about divorce and remarriage, the passage clearly implies these truths and these callings. It implies that marriage is lifelong even as the union of Christ and the church is everlasting, never broken up. Ephesians 5 implies too that there is to be no divorce and no remarriage, even as Christ does not divorce his church or individual elect members of the church to marry another. And even as the truth of the preservation of the saints does not allow the elect church to break his or her union with Christ to marry another Lord and Savior. Truths that other scriptures make explicit. Nevertheless, what is overlooked is that the passage is not so much, not primarily, instruction about earthly marriage as the passage, Ephesians 5, is the lovely gospel of our salvation. This is what the comparison as and even as testify. And this is what the surprising verse, verse 32, expresses. At the very end of spelling out the close intimate relationship of marriage and exhorting the main duties of husband and wife, the apostle exclaims, this is a great mystery. Husband's union with their wife and wife's husband with wives' union with their husband, and now this is a great mystery. One would think that he refers to earthly marriage, and indeed there is something mysterious about earthly marriage, particularly the earthly marriage of a Christian man and his Christian wife. Every believing husband and wife experiences the mystery of marriage. There is more to marriage that, than one can comprehend or explain or understand. Through her tears, my old mother, at the death of her husband, my father, <coughs> cried out, half of me died with him, that points to the mysterious nature of Christian marriage. But in fact, the apostle has not been speaking of earthly marriage, at least not only or mainly. He has been speaking, as he says, concerning Christ and the church. The reality of earthly marriage, the reality of it, of your marriage, who are married here this morning, and of my marriage, the reality of earthly marriage is the union of Christ and the church. Your marriage and my marriage are not the real one. The real marriage is that of Christ and the church. God did not first institute earthly marriage between Adam and Eve and then make it a picture or symbol of the union of Christ and the church. But God first decreed the union of Christ and the church and then made earthly marriage as a faint picture resembling the real one between Christ and the church. That's the reality of marriage in the church.
Christ's union with the church. And a love for us that was purely gracious, favor toward the utterly unlovely and unworthy, Christ married us. That marriage was gracious according to Ephesians 5 verse 25 in that he had to give himself for the church in the atoning death of the cross. In that marriage, the church was unlovely at the beginning inasmuch as Christ had to make her lovely by sanctifying her, according to Ephesians chapter 5. The love of Christ for his church then was a giving, not a taking. The love of Christ for the church was sacrificial, not demanding. The love of Christ for the church was and is effectual. And this, my friends, is the answer to the husband who finds his wife beneath his standards after a while, and who finds his wife below his wishes. She isn't beautiful enough. She isn't capable enough. She isn't talented, talented enough. She doesn't submit enough. Christ married an unworthy woman, the church that includes you and me. And he maintains his lovely relationship with us in spite of our continued unworthiness to be his bride. That we must imitate, we husbands, in our own unions and marriages with the woman that God has given us. In answer to the complaint of the husband, my wife has a certain lack in this or that area. The response is, do you have any lack in relationship to Jesus Christ, your husband? And does he cast you off because of your unworthiness? The husband must take his lead from and follow the example of Jesus Christ, the great husband of the church. Then we learn from Ephesians 5 that Christ lavishes his love upon his bride. He assures his bride of his love. He speaks it to her. According to verse 29 of Ephesians 5, he nourishes and cherishes the church, his wife. That's what he does in Ephesians 5. Every time the church reads that chapter and every time the church preaches that chapter, And that's what he's doing this morning among us by the explanation of Ephesians 5. He is nourishing and cherishing his church and each member of his church. Now this lovely gospel of Christ's and our marriage is reflected in our own earthly marriages and must be reflected in our own earthly marriages. The marriage of Christ determines our marriage. The behavior of Christ in his marriage to the church determines our marriages together as men and women and women and men. Married couples are privileged to show the union of Christ and the church. The world can see the union of Christ and the church in the marriages of us believers. Our marriage is a living, inescapable word of God to the world when they will not hear a word from us. They can't escape the testimony 
that our godly marriages give to them the wicked world. And what a scandal. I use that word deliberately. Keep that word in mind. Scandal. What a scandal if they do not see such a marriage, but rather a marriage characterized by the abuse of his wife by the husband. Five years ago, and maybe as recently as three years ago, at this point in my speech, I would have turned to a careful, thorough examination of divorce and remarriage. I'm not going to do that now. And I'm not going to do that now because there is another great evil that threatens the church and the life of men and women in the church. And that is also a threat to conservative, reformed, and Presbyterian churches. It's always the calling of a minister to address the evils that are a present and urgent threat to the congregation. The pastor is called by Christ, if I may use the crude expression, to scratch where the church itches. And the church itches today in the matter of abusive marriages. And that's why instead of speaking at length or in detail now about divorce and remarriage, I'm going to confront the evil of abuse. There is, at the present time, a demonic assault on the institution of Christian marriage and perverts the gospel of the union of Christ and the church that is supposed to be reflected by Christian marriage among us. If the assault on marriage that I'm referring to is not an epidemic, it is widespread, widespread sufficiently to call for this special concentrated attention. It is found, is this evil, in all churches, including conservative churches, including the Protestant Reformed churches in America. No doubt it has been an evil in the church in the past, but only lately has it been exposed. When I look back over my own experience as a believer and as a pastor, I think of two striking instances of wife abuse that I recognize now, but did not recognize as abuse in the past. The first incident took place when I was 14 or 15 years of age, just a young man, hardly more than a boy. In those days, the members of the Protestant Reformed churches often visited after the service on a Sunday evening. And on this particular Sunday evening, my parents were visiting with an older Dutch Reformed marriage, married couple, very much Dutch in their background, in their speech, and in their thinking. And for some reason, maybe that was the custom in those days as it is not today, I as a 14 or 15 year old boy was in on the entire visit, sitting off in a corner somewhere listening to what was being said. For an hour and a half or two hours, my parents and this old Dutch couple conversed about the sermon, about the church, about doctrine and other spiritual matters. All the while, during the first hour and a half or two hours, the older Dutch Reformed woman, the wife, sat quietly in the corner, never saying one word, while her husband and 
My parents discussed these matters. Finally, after an hour and a half or two hours, she dared to contribute to the conversation, added her opinion regarding whatever was the subject. Her opinion was not heretical. It was not even remarkable. She simply chimed in on the conversation. And hardly had she given her brief opinion than her husband turned to her with an angry look upon his face and said, Anna, shut up. I didn't recognize that as abuse because abuse had not been discovered as a specific evil in the church. But I recognized this as a horrible misrepresentation and behavior concerning not only Christian behavior between mates, but Christian behavior among fellow saints. And obviously that made an impression upon me because I have never forgotten that incident. Something was dreadfully wrong in that conduct of the old Dutch husband. And now, looking back, I wonder how he treated Anna when they were together privately. The second incident that brings out that wife abuse is not at all a new event and problem and evil is something that took place in the first or second year of my ministry a long, long time ago in 1964 or 1965. On a Saturday afternoon, I was finishing up work on one of the sermons for the Lord's Day when there was a knock at the door. There stood a young woman, white-faced, tears rolling down her cheeks, with a child in her arms that could not have been more than a month or two. She came from a dreadful experience in her own home. Her brutal husband had gotten angry with her for some reason or another, had taken his 12-gauge shotgun out of the closet and had threatened to shoot her and the baby. He didn't quite dare to do that, but he fired the shotgun in his own living room and blew a great hole in the ceiling in the presence of that young woman and the child. In terror, she fled, and the only place she could think of fleeing to was the pastor poured out her tale of woe to me. And then she asked this question because she was aware of the strong stand on marriage of the Protestant Reformed churches. Must I go back and live with him in these circumstances? And although at that time I was not conscious of wife abuse, Christian common sense convinced me that that was not her calling. And rather I answered her, by no means you must live outside of his presence, at least for a while, and I will go with you, get your belongings, and inform him that you're leaving the home, which I did. I wish that story had a happy ending, but it does not. He continued to abuse her so that she divorced him and eventually remarried another. I'm not justifying her action. I warned her against that action, but I'm describing honestly the effect of that abuse of his wife by that member of the church. Wife abuse is not something new, but wife abuse is something that has recently come to light as a serious evil and threat to Christian marriage and the church of Jesus Christ. The sinfulness 
of the abuse of one's wife is not merely the evil that occasionally a husband mistreats his wife, speaks harshly to her, shows ingratitude to her, or in general, fails to love her as Christ loves the church. Such misbehavior, I dare say, with sorrow, bedevils every marriage. This is sin. This is sin that must be confessed by the husband and sin that the wife ought to forgive him for. But this is not abuse. Abuse is, and here I describe abuse in light of my own experience and in light of much reading of materials on abuse in the church. Abuse is the deliberate, continual destruction of the woman. Day in and day out. Year in and year out. By cruel verbal criticism, by the threat of physical violence, which is itself violence, and invariably by actual physical violence, hitting her, slapping her, choking her, and other forms of violence. According to question 105 of the Heidelberg Catechism, this behavior towards the woman is the murder of the wife. Wife abuse is ongoing murder, a continual killing of one's own wife. I'll prove briefly that this is what the Heidelberg Catechism calls murder. In question 105, what doth God require in the sixth commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another. And then question 107. When God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That includes husbands and wives. To show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards him and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies. The Reformed Confession identifies wife abuse as nothing less than murder. This now is the monstrously wicked behavior of one who calls himself a Christian and who holds membership in a true church. This is the conduct of one whose behavior is supposed to reflect the behavior towards his wife, the church of Jesus Christ. And elders, ministers, and churches are culpably mishandling this evil in our midst. And I mean by our midst, the midst of the most conservative of Reformed and Presbyterian churches. This is not true of all, of course, all ministers and all elders, but enough are, and in such a public manner, that it is necessary to call attention to the blameworthy mishandling of this evil by the authorities in the church. One such mishandling of this evil is that ministers and elders simply deny the reality of the evil. They turn a blind eye to it. 
And I can understand this because for a minister to involve himself in a wife, a case of wife abuse is to involve himself in a messy business, a business filled with dangers and unpleasantries. And so for that reason, as well as others, ministers and elders choose not to become involved in this at all. You can imagine for yourself what this means for the woman who is looking to the church for help and for deliverance. One such mishandling, another mishandling along the same line is that the wife comes crying to the minister as a rule after years and years of abuse and the minister advises her to go home and submit herself more to her husband. The young people will pardon me because they're, but they're very much involved in this if abuse is part of their family life was that in my own experience, a minister responded to the woman who came to him for help in her, the abuse of her by her husband by telling her, go home and give him more sex. Can you imagine, can you believe such advice and help? Not only does that cheapen the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, but it also makes help for the woman impossible. Or the minister may meet once with both husband and wife together, instruct the husband who lies about his abuse to love his wife, reads the Bible and prays, and this is the end of the matter as far as the minister is concerned. Then when the woman seeks help from worldly counselors, the minister will condemn the wife for seeking help in the world. She has sought help in the kingdom of Christ and found none. And naturally enough, she turns into a counselor, a helper in the world, only to be criticized and condemned by the church for seeking help that the church itself declined to give her. The minister may report to the consistory that he has dealt with a marriage problem. But it is no ordinary marriage problem. It is a case of abuse. Another instance of mishandling is that the minister or elder does not take the abuse seriously, does not judge it and deal with it as abuse, as ongoing murder, as the catechism describes it. He will then meet with the couple a couple of times, a few times, he will go over with them the duties of a husband and the duties of a wife. He will admonish them, probably with a serious face, to behave rightly and send them home where the abuser will assault his wife worse than he did before. There is then no covenantal concentrated work with the abusive husband to confess his sin and to overcome his ingrained evil. There is no follow-up. The duty of a minister and of a consistory in such a case is to follow up on the first meeting, to inform the husband that he's going to be meeting with the two of them weekly or monthly to continue to admonish the husband and to keep oversight over whether the husband is making any improvement and is genuinely sorry 
for his sin against his wife. The wife is left in her misery at home. And all too common in a case like this is the evil of the minister and the elders and the church of blaming the abused woman. She is the victim. When this thing comes to light, in the consistory anyway, she is the one who is blamed. There are reasons for this. The abusing husband is usually an accomplished liar. Often the abusive husband is a prominent member in the church. The consistory will take the side of the man that the woman is crazy, emotionally disturbed, as I have heard about such a condemnation of the woman by a consistory, a nutcase. She gets no sympathy. And then when the abusive husband finally drives the woman out of his house, the consistory will charge the wife with the sin, quote, of leaving her husband. She has not left her husband in the biblical sense of leaving. He drove her out. That's different. It's one thing for a woman to leave her husband because she's attracted to another man. It's another thing for the woman to leave the house because he drove her out with a 12-gauge shotgun. The sin of separation then is not hers. The sin of separation is his. Churches are grievously mishandling the sin of abuse. They're not helping the distressed women. They're aiding and abetting the abusive husband. And thus, by not dealing rightly with a serious contemporary attack on marriage among us, they are sinning against the doctrine and truth of the gospel of the union of Christ with his church. And I might add that another way that all too often is a mishandling of these cases by the church, those who exert themselves to help the abused woman are attacked by the consistory for damaging the reality of marriage among us. As though, as though those who help the abused women are guilty of separating the abusive husband from his abused wife. That's a mishandling of the evil of wife abuse. I said earlier, and now I repeat, abuse is a scandal, a scandal in our midst. It is a scandal first because it is a wickedness that is destroying marriage among us. Abusive husbands are driving their wives out of the home and away from their husbands. Even if the wife remains in the home for the sake of the children and for the sake of her own livelihood, she has no financial support apart from her husband, their marriage is an empty shell. If the wife, if the church merely insists that the wife live in the same house with the abuser as though this safeguards marriage among us. The church is guilty of the hypocrisy of the Pharisee. The church is content to make marriage appear beautiful outward while within 
It is full of dead women's bones. Matthew 23, verse 27. And the helper of the woman in these cases may very well imperil his own standing in the church. He is the object of the, the accusation that he is guilty of the destruction of marriages in the congregation, especially if the abuser drives the abused woman out of his fellowship and away from his home and family. That's false. The helper is not guilty of destroying marriage. The, abused, the abusive husband is guilty of this destruction of marriage. Abuse is a scandal, secondly, inasmuch as it is destroying the female members of the church. The female members of the church, the abused women, despair. They resort to drinking in excess. They are cutting themselves as though that takes away the pain of their abusive relationship to their husband. I do fully expect suicides on the part of abused women as the effect of the abuse of them by their husbands. Worst of all, if there can be something worse than that, worst of all, abuse is the cause of the woman's denouncing of the church, renouncing of Jesus Christ, and falling into a final apostasy. They go lost. The thinking of the abused wife runs along these lines. If this is the church, I turn my back on the church. If this is what Christ permits in his church, I renounce Jesus Christ. I have spoken deliberately, I now myself, I have spoken deliberately of the scandal of abuse in the literal biblical sense of the word scandal. A scandal, biblically, is not only a gross, offensive evil and wickedness, but a scandal is a wicked act on the part of a member of the church that causes someone to stumble over this act into perdition. That's the word that Jesus used in Matthew 18, verse 7, quote, it must need be that offenses come, scandals, literally. But woe to that man by whom the offense, the scandal, cometh. End of quote. Offense in the Greek is literally scandal. Offenses will come that cause people to stumble into hell. But woe to the one who is the cause of the scandal. Abused women may go lost. But woe to the husband who is the cause of his wife's eternal destruction. That's the very opposite of a husband's calling in the church. That is, causing her to stumble eternally and spiritually is the very op opposite of the husband's calling. He's supposed to build her up spiritually. And how contrary, my friends, to the behavior of Jesus Christ toward his church. He doesn't behave in such a way that he causes us to perish. He behaves toward us, his wife, in such a way as to carry us into heaven. Abuse is a scandal in the third place, 
and that it reflects badly upon Jesus Christ. The world is watching our marriages. The world is watching how we husbands behave towards our wives. The world sees the abusive husband, even if the consistory cannot do so, and the world jeers. This is Christian marriage. This is how Jesus treats his wife. We scandalize the name of Jesus by how we behave in our marriages. Out of this all comes a sharp warning to us husbands and to the churches, and I'm going to give that sharp warning now. I'm not going to end on a positive, pleasant note, but I'm going to end on the note of a sharp warning to husbands and to the churches. But I want first to give some practical instruction to the young people who are here, whose presence is a delight to me and to us all. I speak first to the young men who are not married. Here is a bevy of beauties. Here is a gathering of lovely females whom God intends to have a husband as he intends for you young unmarried men to have a wife. These young women are beautiful. I have a theory that virtually all Presbyterian and Reformed young women are beautiful females. <laughs> But apart from their physical appearance, they're lovely in this sense, that they can share a life with you in Christ, that they can be the mother of your children. You pardon me. They can help you go to heaven. Now I have a word to the young women. Even though these young men profess to be Christians, when you date them, if he mistreats you, he criticizes you all the time, if all he's interested in is himself, if he uses you, dump him, even though he's a member of the Protestant Reformed Churches or some other conservative denomination. How he behaves toward you in the dating is how he will behave, behave himself toward you in your marriage. You mustn't commit yourself to such a man. That's practical instruction to the youth. I give that because I was a pastor for 25 years and pastors have to be practical. And I'm the father myself of a large number of children, girls and boys. And this is the kind of practical admonition my wife and I gave to our children when they were dating and about to marry. <clears throat> now I have a sharp warning to us Christian husbands. Christ is the example we are commanded to follow. And his behavior to the church is the pattern of our own conduct in our marriages. He loved his bride, did not hate her. He sacrificed for her. He was not demanding of her. He nourishes and cherishes his wife. He does not destroy her. That's the example for our behavior towards our wife in marriage. And the husband's behavior towards his wife in Christian marriage 
is not conditioned upon the wife's obedience and worthiness, her beauty, her abilities, even her submissiveness. She's called to be submissive, but our calling to love her is not conditioned upon her obedience. What if Christ's love of us were conditioned upon our worth or upon our perfect obedience? We're lost. Ephesians 5 emphasizes our natural ugliness and unworthiness. We needed cleansing on account of our sin. Disobedience brings down, disobedience of husbands brings down the wrath of God upon the abusive husband. The abusive husband who does not repent of his abuse will be damned. That's sharp warning. He'll be damned for his own abuse. He'll be damned for the ruination of his wife. That's a sharp warning to us married persons. Now a sharp warning to the churches. The churches must preach against abuse and must warn abusive husbands of their impending damnation, calling them to repentance. The churches must preach marriage not only as an unbreakable bond, but as a living bond in which the husbands live with their wife as Christ does with the church. The churches must preach the marital bond as genuine union, patterned after Christ's own. To elders and ministers who turn a blind eye to abuse, who are content to give the evil a lick and a promise, and who aid and abet the abuser, you commit and connive at the scandal. You make yourselves guilty of the damnation, both of the abused wife and of the abusive husband. You tolerate such a reflection of Christ and the church. Your loud praise of marriage, even of marriage as an unbreakable bond, is mere hypocrisy if you tolerate abuse. By preaching and discipline, root abuse out of the churches so that marriage among us truly pictures the relationship of Christ and the church. The Christ who loved the church and gave himself for her. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode. We will feature more speeches from the 2022 British Reform Fellowship Conference in upcoming weeks. Please send any feedback or questions you may have to hope rwc at gmail.com and we will respond promptly.